0: Hey, hi, what's up? Hello, everybody. Alex Kapitko here, and this is the Centered from Reality Podcast. I hope your—what day is today? Monday. I hope your Monday's going well. Um, I hope also your Christmas went well, your Hanukkah's going well, your whatever else is going well. I hope you have, you know, a good time with your family and friends. My Christmas was pretty good. Spent some time with numerous different groups of friends and family, ate well— Even got a run in, the Packers won. I want to give a just a special shout out to Tua on the Miami Dolphins for throwing three picks. Christmas came, well, on the day of Christmas for me with that. The Packers still have a chance. They're they have about a 30% chance of making the playoffs, and based on how crappy their season's been going, I will take it. So, you know, anyways, lucky to have great people in my life, great family, great friends. I always end up liking the holidays. the cheer, the music, the movies, even when I, you know, bitch about it half the year, but anyways, the one, the one shout out too is someone gave me a hot sauce collection from a Hell's Kitchen brand, I don't know if it's actually Hell's Kitchen, you know, sometimes they buy out the name or whatever, but the Gordon Ramsay Hell's Kitchen, great hot sauces, creative gift, and I'm using those a lot, so be warned, and Anyways, while my Christmas was great, and I hope yours was as well, a lot of people in the East, especially, did not fare as well. Tragically, I saw that as of now, at least 27 people have died, excuse me, in Erie County, New York, which Buffalo is part of. CNN notes this was a result of a massive winter storm that I talked about last week, which blasted much of the U.S. County officials in Erie said Monday... This brought the nationwide death toll to 47, and yeah, I mean, parts of western New York are basically buried in up to 43 inches of snow, vehicles are stuck, thousands are without power, it's a complete catastrophe, and not to make light of this, but I saw a meme where someone was like, we're getting the movie the day after tomorrow today, and It's kind of true. I mean, if you remember that movie from the early thousands, I mean, some of the places I've seen pictures of, especially like in Buffalo, kind of look like that. So tragic chaos. Um, A lot of flights are still being canceled. Some flights have just been permanently canceled. So people are stuck and have to drive or wait it out. Hopefully that'll be better by the time I'm traveling later in the week. So we shall see. (laughs) We shall see. But uh, obviously very tragic, I hope. The people that are still uh, still trapped get aid, and let's just hope this storm passes. Here we're supposed to get some floods and re- heavy rain in the Reno-Tahoe area, so we'll see how that goes. But let's see, moving on, before I get into the two main topics today, which are the migrants that were dropped on Christmas Eve at Vice President Kamala Harris's house, and then I want to talk about Putin saying he's willing to negotiate, what does that mean, Ukrainian officials saying they want a peace summit in February. We'll get into all that, but first I want to discuss a few of my new thoughts or revelations or things I've learned on fascism and its origins, stemming from some of my readings this week, podcasts I've been listening to, books I've been listening to, and just articles I've been reading, and I think maybe this is becoming kind of a weekly segment where I do some revelations on fascism, and again, just a disclaimer, I am not supportive of these because some people would go, oh, God, like, why are you so interested in this stuff? And it's because I'm, I'm just fascinated with how fascism is kind of a movement that stems completely contrary to a lot of historical trends, I guess you could say, and also how it kind of has dealt with a crisis of liberty and completely put liberty on its face. So anyways, the revelation for today is something interesting from that book, Anatomy of Fascism by Robert Paxton. And basically, the interesting thing is that he discusses that, f- that some of the final conditions, basically, for fascism to succeed, and one of them is choice. And he basically, he downplays the idea that a lot of Marxists have about fascism, about how fascism is this inevitable evolution of capitalism that basically, as capital gets more and more hard to obtain, and as society keeps going further and further away—sorry, we got a beep that comes here every once in a while—but anyways— Basically, the Marxists say that after a long time, capitalism becomes fascism. And Paxton basically notes that there is a certain amount of choice by elites. And he says it's not just the evolution of capitalism, but elites, powerful leaders, and intellectuals need to embrace fascist ideas. And they almost open the floodgates to the public. They basically enable fascism to happen. And there's an interesting example that Paxton uses, and it's the March on Rome and how it has been misunderstood. So I won't get into all the background on the March of Rome because it's basically just long and convoluted. But the idea is that Mussolini and his black shirts basically created an organized movement that, in quotes, stormed Rome and took it over eventually. And the idea is that the fascist party planned a coup and insurrection, and eventually this led to Mussolini's ascension to power. However, it's becoming more and more clear through history and through time that the March on Rome was a giant bluff that worked out. Basically, it was a bluff that succeeded and timing was right. And a lot of enablers and choices made by the monarchy, which was in power, were important. What I mean here is that the basic plan was for the fascists to take the capital itself by using the image of pressure and strength. And basically, as Paxton discusses, thousands of black shirts began to head towards Rome. And basically, the king at the time, who was Victor Emmanuel III, was the head of the state, and he was put in a pretty difficult situation, and he had to make a very difficult choice. Basically, he could either mobilize the army against the people marching on Rome, who were the fascists, and he could try to use use force to quell the attempted insurrection, or he could give in and listen to their needs. And... I think people can understand why this would be a difficult choice, especially when you're going against a movement that is getting more and more popular in parts of the North, and a movement that uses force and violence. And so the king chose the latter option and decided to give in to the fascist requests. And this meant that Mussolini was appointed prime minister. And this was a big deal because the king pretty much gave up power to Mussolini due to a bluff. And I think it seems likely that the king was concerned that he could not count on the army to remain loyal during this insurrection and there was also probably an element of self-interest here because he seemed to calculate that by appointing the head of an insurrection as prime minister he could you know somewhat legitimize fascist violence and be a co-leader of the state instead of maybe deposed or caught up in some violent coup and apparently his brother was also a prince in another region, which has escaped my head right now. And he was a supporter of the fascist system and liked the idea of fascism. And I think the King Emmanuel III was worried that his brother could maybe take over or become an ally of the fascists. So yeah, the king made this calculation that it was better to give in rather than quell the violence. And I think history probably shows that was a bad idea. But that, my friends, is a choice that enabled fascism. And I won't get into the other side of the March on Rome, but I will just also mention that other choices were made, like a lot of, for example, powerful conservatives, liberals, centrists, tried to form a government to keep out the fascists and block Mussolini, but they inevitably failed. This was very crucial, and also I think they chose to not settle their differences, and divided government happened. Also, a lot of conservatives made choices. They either saw the fascists as... A bulwark against the socialists or whatever it may be. But yes, that's my little revelation for the day here. And yeah, maybe we'll make this a Monday thing. Let me know if you think that's an awful idea. But anyways, I want to talk about the migrants that were dropped near Vice President Kamala Harris's house on a very cold Christmas Eve, something that really sounds like it's in the Christmas spirit. Am I right? Anyways, so I saw this report Story, whatever you want to call it, happened over Christmas Eve. Then I read about it yesterday. Figured it's something I should talk about. Basically, the AP and almost every other news outlet I've seen has reported here that in quotes, three buses of recent migrant families arrived from Texas near the home of VP President. Sorry, VP Kamala Harris in a record-setting cold on Christmas Eve, and the AP does a really good job of just explaining in quotes here. The buses that arrived late Saturday outside the vice president's residence were carrying around 110 to 130 people. And that's according to Tatiana Laborde, a managing director of SM. Sorry, SAMU First Response, which is kind of a relief agency working inside Washington to get food and other resources to serve migrants who have been dropped off in recent months. And I should note that while, you know, similar theatricals, if you want to call them that, have been happening for close to six months now. This was brutal and harsh. Like, I mean, they've all been kind of brutal and harsh, but dropping someone off in D.C. or New York in June is much different than, well, dropping them off during one of the coldest storms in history, or at least in the last, like, several decades. And it's just kind of cruel. I mean, the frigid temperatures have kind of been insane, and from what I've understood, the buses were expected to arrive after Sunday, like either Sunday or into Monday, but they arrived early on Saturday evening, and a group of migrants included young children, older people, vulnerable people. I mean, not a good look, and I mean, I don't know, I'll get into my, I mean, I'll get into it in a little bit why I mean I do think there's issues at the border, but this is not a way to solve it, but... Also, according to the Washington Post, uh, some were wearing t-shirts, despite temperatures hovering around 15 degrees Fahrenheit. And of course, I'm just speculating here, but you have to wonder if the people even knew where they were going, where they lied to, like what DeSantis did, where they didn't even know they were going to Martha's Vineyard. There's so many issues with that, but I mean, if people are wearing t-shirts going into frigid temperatures, just dropped in the city, like... I just have a lot of issues with that, and of course, I'm sure there could be more to the story, but from everything I'm reading, it just sounds kind of deplorable to me. I should also continue by noting that there's a lot of speculation about who's responsible for this uh, cruel Christmas carol, and a lot of people do believe that Greg Abbott, the, in my opinion, atrocious governor of Texas, is involved in this ploy. The reason a lot of people think he's involved in this ploy is kind of Occam's Razor, because his office has basically gloated about giving bus rides to about 15,000 people since April to places like D.C., New York, Chicago, Philadelphia. So, you know, when you've been gloating about busing people to these cities and then a bus of them shows up in frigid temperatures, I mean, it's probably not complicated, especially if they're coming from Texas, right? And as of now, I guess his office has not directly confirmed that he was involved in this recent line of immigrants or migrants coming, or according to Stanford, we can't say that anymore. But anyways, these actions do fall in line with what his office has been doing over the last few months, right? And (laughs) Politico has an article that discusses how in a statement on Monday, a spokesperson for Abbott did appear to confirm his office's involvement in the buses. The statement was by someone named Renee Eze. I think that's how you pronounce it. I don't know. And the statement reads, in quotes, These migrants willingly chose to go to Washington, D.C., having signed a voluntary consent waiver available in multiple languages upon boarding what they agreed on the desti- destination. <laughs> As added, in quotes here, Instead of their hypocritical complaints about Texas providing much-needed relief to our overrun and overwhelmed border communities, President Biden and Border Czar Harris need to step up and do their jobs to secure the border, something they continue failing to do. Now, it's a very loaded statement. So let's look at the first part. And I guess, I mean, if the migrants are willing to go there, at least it's probably not trafficking. But at the same time, like, you have to wonder if the migrants really know what they're being set up for. Because it's one thing to have waivers in a language and just tell them you're going to D.C. But did they tell them we're just dropping you at the VP's house? Did they tell them we're just busing you there without a lot of plans of action or policy goals ahead? Like, like, just because they know where they're going doesn't mean they know where they're going. It's it's so much more complicated than that. But now on the second part of that statement, the stuff about need hypocr- hypocrisy by the border czar Harris and President Biden. Like, look, there's there's definitely fuel for criticism over how Vice President Harris has handled it. I don't think she's really done enough. I do think the Biden administration is like walking a very tight thin rope about whether they want to demonize migrants, but then also deal with the crisis. I think the left struggles with dealing with immigration right now just because of kind of the rhetoric around it. And like, you know, the idea of no one's illegal, all this stuff, like it makes it hard to really run an effective border policy when you have people that really don't believe that immigration is a problem, even if it's illegal or whatever else you want to call it. But I don't think Biden has actually diverged that much from the Trump administration either. So it, I, I kind of wonder if some of the perceptions on the right of Democrats not doing enough is because they hear people like AOC or Twitter warriors basically say no person is illegal. Because I don't think Biden is some just open borders type of guy, to be completely honest. Now, I do think Mayorkas, who is probably going to get impeached over this, I do think he's not done good enough of a job and he might be underqualified. But that's a whole other conversation and kind of gets away from this here. But also, like, what's the point of dropping them at VP Harris's residence? I mean, is that really going to solve anything other than just a middle finger to her? I, I I don't really know, but it all just seems like a mess to me personally. And, of course, people on the left are angry. And people on the right seem kind of okay with it. I can kind of understand the anger, especially with the weather and the cold and stuff right now. Maybe I'm just becoming soft because of the holidays, but I don't know. It seems cold. For example, Joaquin Castro, a representative in Texas, Democrat, called his state's governor. I like this one, a heartless piece of shit. I mean, he said POS, but I I wanted to say it. So, which I, I would agree with. I don't think Greg Abbott's a good governor. I also think Eric Swalwell, who I'm also not a big fan of, but can be accurate, accurate sometimes. I think he had a, pretty good point about this kind of about the cruel performative state of politics on the GOP. He tweeted in quotes here, I see the Christmas spirit is with at GOP leader McCarthy's party. It's sad to see them reduce themselves to this. He added cruelty and chaos were a feature of the party. And it's something I've agreed with for a long time. I, I do think that's, I do think that's a serious issue on the right at this time. I also think that there's good governors on the right, and there's kind of just performative governors who just want to go on Fox News or be a star. And Greg Abbott, to me, seems like kind of a celebrity governor who likes to be popular with Sean Hannity, but every time there's an issue in Texas, he's kind of a failure. Between the border to the energy grid crises, just to name a few. But honestly, I just, again, think my biggest issue with all of this is that this is one of the coldest Christmases on record, And the party that seems to think there is a war on Christmas pretty much is acting cold and cruel on a day that's supposed to be about compassion and grace. And, you know, I'm not super religious, but I do believe that religion should push for compassion. And I think dropping migrants into the cold on Christmas Eve to make a point is not that, right? Like I've said, I understand that crossings are up, and some more liberal states have kind of been isolated from the ramifications of that. I think that's a fact, and I think... Especially some northern liberal cities just don't understand why maybe there's stricter immigration policies or rhetoric by the right in places like Texas. But that being said, I just don't think anything constructive here is happening. And I got into a bit of a debate with a family member last week about the actions of Greg Abbott and Ron DeSantis, for example, who are sending migrants to liberal states, right? And the individual, the family member, said they liked it, and they said both governors were bringing attention to all of the issues on the border, the Democrats are ignoring, ignoring. And while I agreed that there are more people than usual at the southern border, and I do think sometimes there's some hypocrisy on the left about it, I said I think these policies by Abbott or DeSantis are just cruel, and they're trying to make cruel points. It's kind of like back to the child separation stuff under Trump, where a lot of Trump officials like Stephen Miller were trying to be cruel. That was the point of separating families, to make a point. And especially when it's potentially illegal under international law and also when you're just trying to be an asshole to be an asshole, I think that's tr- that's problematic. And I don't really want to live under a government that thinks cruelty is the best option for making points. There's other ways to do it without separating families or whatnot. But anyways, I'd, I basically went on to say there's no policies, there's no immigration reform ideas or productive actions. These are just cringeworthy optics that are cruel and possibly illegal too. If you consider that Ron DeSantis had basically no information given to those Venezuelans when they were busting Martha's Vineyard, for example. But I just feel like these tactics are the pinnacle of owning the libs, you know, in quotes here, owning the libs type of mentality. And it's all just performative. And to me, immigration is an issue that does need to be resolved because our asylum system's broken A lot of things are broken, but all of this is not helping it. And the last thing I'll say is that the Biden administration has been harshly, I guess you could say, criticized for its border policies this month because there's the expected expiration of Title 42, right, which was that immigration policy used by the Trump administration and then also the Biden administration, which prevents the entry of millions of migrants under COVID era rules. Looks like that's, I mean, it's been temporarily upheld by the courts, but it's probably going to go away. And I think we're going to see immigration just coming back to the forefront pretty soon. I don't have, like, a strong opinion on 42. I kind of understand why during a pandemic you wouldn't want to be too lenient with immigration. And, like, I think we're always just going to keep picking at specific policies or Article 42 or whatever it is. But at the end of the day, I think we just have a broken immigration system that needs to be discussed. But it's hard when you have Greg Abbott bussing people to the border on one side, and you have liberals saying that immigration or illegal immigration is not a thing. No one's legal. It's like of course no one's illegal. But we also need to have like laws and borders and like like society doesn't work when you just let people run over. And and the thing is is that's probably why I'm not a libertarian completely is because some libertarians would just be for open open flow of people, and I'm just not, personally. So, it's complicated, but we'll move on. So, sticking on the fun, a.k.a. tragedy, of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, all the Putin BS, and Zelensky coming to the U.S., I read this morning that there was another Ukrainian attack inside of Russia that reportedly killed several Russian soldiers, which is always... Not good to see, but it shows the Ukrainians are not messing around by any means. And according to The Economist, in quotes, Russian soldiers, I mean, sorry, drones attacked an airbase deep within Russia, reportedly killing three people. Although the drone was shot down, its debris proved fatal. The Angles base lies 500 kilometers from the Russian-Ukrainian border and is used to launch missiles. So obviously an important spot. The article continues, Kremlin forces, meanwhile, fired 40 rockets at Ukrainian cities on Christmas Day despite Vladimir Putin, Russia's president, saying he was ready to negotiate peace. Now, I saw yesterday, I think it was yesterday, yeah, yesterday was Christmas, and I saw that it looked quite bleak for a Christmas in Ukraine, as rockets were firing down in places as far as Kherson to Kiev, and people had to celebrate in candlelight or in hiding, resources weren't getting to the cities, you know, uh, it's, it's just not a pretty scene. But the reason I mention this story is because it's interesting. If you remember the last part, it says Putin, he was ready to negotiate peace. And that sounds kind of strange for the leader of a country that has pretty much single-handedly killed innocent people and invaded Ukraine to now say he's willing to negotiate. And it kind of gets my attention because you have to go, what does he mean by negotiate? And is there any actual negotiation that's going to happen here? And... I want to spend a few minutes talking about that, and also reports from the AP that basically say, in quotes here, Ukraine's foreign minister on Monday said that his government is aiming to have a peace summit by the end of February, preferably at the United Nations, with Secretary General Antonio Gutierrez as a possible mediator around the anniversary of Russia's war. And that's interesting, but I don't know if that's going to happen, but I would say we should probably not get too excited yet. So, to start... Putin has said something to the effect of he's willing to negotiate peace with everyone involved in the conflict. Now, we should note that the Russians have done this a lot. They always seem to play the martyr, play, play the victim, like, oh, we are always trying to talk about peace. We're always open for peace, but peace is on our terms. And I should add that this is more about specific demands and understandings of what a peace would be. And Reuters reports and quotes here... Russia is ready to negotiate with all parties involved in the war in Ukraine, but Kiev and its Western backers have refused to engage in talks. And this all is what Putin told during an interview on Russia One state television. And basically he said in quotes here, We are ready to negotiate with everyone involved about acceptable solutions, but that is up to them. We are not the ones refusing to negotiate. They are. Now, I should just add that, I mean, <laughs> that language is very unique because he, he talks about acceptable solutions, ready to negotiate, up to them. We're not refusing to negotiate. Yeah, that all sounds good on paper, but I think they're just trying to look like a martyr because I would imagine if you actually put them in a room and asked what their acceptable solutions are, they would not line up with anything Zelensky or the West or Ukrainian people, anything that would be good for them, right? And we can just... Basically assume that <laughs> Putin just wants the world to think that Russia is the good guy willing to talk. Also in the interview, Putin is really gaslighting, sorry, gaslighting all of us and his population, which is kind of interesting to me. Apparently he said that Russia is a unique country and that its population is fully supportive of defending it. He said here in quotes, As for the main part, the 99.9% of our citizens are people who are ready to give up everything for the interests of the motherland there is nothing unusual for me here he also added this just once again convinces me that russia is a unique country and that we have an exceptional people this has been confirmed throughout the history of russia's existence now the first thing i would say is that 99.9% of anything especially when it comes to a politician's popularity electoral success anything involving like politics and public opinion 99.9% to me is bullshit because that just wouldn't exist like there's no way 99.9% of the country believes what Putin is doing is right. I will say that I've, I mean, I've talked to Russians that live in the United States, so I guess technically they're not in Russia, but they say they have family there that is not too thrilled about this stuff. So I think you could probably assume that there's other people like that. So maybe maybe 60% of the country supports it, and that's just a number I'm pulling out of nowhere. But, you know, I just could not imagine 99.9%. And then he also you know blames the west for trying to pull russia apart and i don't know about you guys but it seems seems to me like putin is drinking too much of his own vodka and he's just engaged in some form of russian supremacy here because he's saying that the people are exceptional and they're willing to fight for the motherland it's proven throughout our existence the russia's russia's a unique country it just sounds like this weird form of kind of like supremacy talk here and i don't know if that's good either so in in this case Literally in these interviews and what he's saying, his mouth is verbally discussing peace talks or some willingness to negotiate, but his actions and rhetoric seem to show that he wants a very specific outcome, right? Which I think would be, you know, partitioning off part of Ukraine. And I think this specific solution is one that we know, uh, you know, Ukrainians like Zelensky are not willing to consider and... I should also add that Russia constantly does say it's ready for these peace talks. It's a constant initiative that the country takes. I just don't really have much to think of it. And that takes us to now the other side of it is where you have... Sorry, let me pull up his name here. I, I, it went somewhere. You have the foreign minister of Ukraine, Dmitro Kuleba, and he told the Associated Press that he wants to have a summit in February, a peace summit, and Russia could only be invited if the country faced a war crimes tribunal first. They obviously want to agree that Russia completely leaves Ukraine, nothing's taken, now you have Putin saying specific outcomes. It's just interesting to me that they're talking about having a peace summit by the end of February with the United Nations basically mediating it with Secretary General Antonio Gutierrez, but the problem is here is that we we listen to what Putin's saying about specific outcomes, and then we hear about Zelensky saying all the Russians have to leave. And apparently Zelensky is talking about, you know, a 10-point peace formula that includes the restoration of Ukraine's territorial, you know, integrity, withdrawal of Russian troops, release of all pri- prisoners, tribunal for those responsible. Do you think Putin's going to sign up for any of this? Because I don't. I I just could not see this going over well between the two parties. So, like... I guess the theme of this here is that if you just skimmed an article and saw, oh, Putin willing to negotiate, and then you saw Ukrainian foreign minister talking about a peace summit, oh, that sounds great. But like, when you really think about the situation here, I don't know how that particularly happens. And I mean, I guess one could hope that Putin feels pressure. But as I've said at nauseum, and I'm sorry, I'm going to repeat it, is that the the people that would want putin out are not the ones that would want democracy restored to ukraine i mean to russia sorry so yeah i I just don't really see what the outcome is here but i I mean i'm of course for the ukrainian peace formula in 2023 i think most of the world would be better off if it happens but uh, how do you have a peace summit when zelensky wants putin gone and Putin seems convinced that he's correct in this Russian supremacy and believes the West is trying to take back parts of Ukraine from him. I just don't right now see an outcome being great with that. So we'll have to keep our fingers crossed, of course. I mean, there's a lot of time. It's, I mean, I guess not that much time if you think about it. It's almost January. We have a month or two based on this deadline. Winter is here, and... Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I just say yeah, I'm not optimistic by any means possible, but, you know, obviously things change. Um, I'm definitely optimistic about what's happened with the Ukrainian side, but I think Putin is Putin's not that dumb. So, anyways, I'm uh, going to wrap up here. A little bit shorter episode. We're all over the place with the times, but I think we covered everything we need to today, and hopefully hopefully there's some optimism. I, I will add that I I think going into 2023... 2022 hasn't been as bad as 2021. Obviously, there's a lot of chaos in the world and a lot of problems. But I think one of my big worries, if I remember correctly, going into 2022 was that authoritarianism was rising and liberalism was winning. And I don't know, this year has kind of given me some hope that democracy is fighting back against some of the nefarious forces out there. So even if things are not looking super rosy right now in Ukraine. I think the fact that the world is backing them and Russia is cornered and acting out, I think is somewhat optimistic. So maybe I'm just being light here because it's the holidays. But I do think as we go into 2023, there's some things to look forward to. Even though if you zoom out enough, there's always going to be a problem. So anyways, you can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, you know the rest. (laughs) Bye-bye.